Hi, I'm Rob Shirky.、Uh, I've got the mic. You can't stop me. I'm the guest this week、uh, on the Green Majority. You're listening to on CIUT or the podcast.、Uh, if you'd like to help support the program, please donate at Patreon. The website is patreon.com/greenmajority. I myself am a longtime contributor. I think it's important to support independent media uh, uh, and get the word out on issues of sustainability. And now on to the podcast. Welcome. You are listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT eighty nine point five FM. I'm going to take a lot of deep breaths today as your host,、uh, being Saren Kaster. In case anyone's new listener this week, welcome to the Green Majority. This is going to be a very laid back episode of the Green Majority for a couple of reasons. One,、uh, because it's really hot outside as we're recording this live in Toronto here on、uh, Friday the what is it now twentieth twenty first. Uh, and so there's that.、Uh, I feel like everybody in my life has been exhausted this week, and I, it's just and that's fine. But we're not going to take the week off.、Uh, Stefan's not. He, Stefan's so laid back; he's not here.、Um, so it was really my pleasure to find out that Stefan had organized、uh, that Rob Shirky would be my guest today because Rob is also someone who's. I find very relaxing to talk to. He's very laid back. Sometimes can surprise you because he can say like controversial things in a very laid back tone of voice. So it kind of comes out of left field, but but it matches the tone I wanted today. So thank you for joining me, Rob. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me again, Saren.、Uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a few serious things and a few not serious things. I would I would be remiss of my duties if we didn't mention some of the news items of the day. And there there is a couple of heavy items here that we're going to talk about. Uh, I elected in the last three minutes that we're going to leave that for the end. That I need to work my way up to it personally, and that and that I feel that maybe the audience is in the same place today. So we're going to take a really easy, long, slow walk at it today because that's where I'm at. And Rob is nice enough to join me there. And walking is a great、yes. way of getting for me to be very low carbon. Yeah. And so what I'm going to do just now is I'm going to just tease some of the content for later in the program, and then I'm just going to hand over to Rob. And what we're going to do is、uh, Rob's going to start.、Uh, he wanted to sort of pick up、um, on a conversation we've been having over the last few weeks. There's been a number of conversations because there was a bunch of articles about it, but around framing and、mm. uh, sort of positive and negative language and that sort of thing. So Rob's going to chime in on that. Also, give us a little bit of an update on our horizon to start in the middle of the program.、Uh, We actually decided that it would be really fun to talk about how climate change has affected dating.、Uh, I'm not going to say anything else about it because that's really Rob's thing. But I have some stuff I want to jump into there. But、uh, optimal fun will be had after the first break,、mm-hmm. uh, and then we're going to rip it all down because in the last section I, I have to talk about some terrible things. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna give you a chance to warm into it this week. I think that's fair. What do you think, Rob? I think that sounds great. Okay, so I'm going to be doing. You might actually hear me. I'm going to be doing a lot of like deep breaths today, and、uh, and with my with my next deep breath, I hand、uh, it over to you, Rob, to to、uh, reintroduce yourself、uh, in case anyone、um, doesn't know who you are.、Uh, mm-hmm. I did very poor job of introducing you this week because I'm tired, so I'm just going to let you do it. That's totally fine. And、uh, suffice it to say that you're the executive director of、uh, organization Our Horizon. You've been a repeated guest on this program. Um, and with that, I give it to you.、Uh, thanks again for having me. So my name is Rob Shirky.、Uh, my background is I'm a lawyer, but a few years ago I launched a, a nonprofit called Our Horizon. And、uh, what we're asking of governments、uh, at the provincial level,、uh, federal level, and even the local level is to pass legislation that would require. Um, call them climate change warning labels or risk disclosure labels on gas pumps. So right at that point of sale,、um, that sort of help to close the experiential gap between cause and effect. So this abstract, sometimes far away thing called climate change is all of a sudden a bit more real, a bit more personal, and then and then perhaps. Uh, there's greater social impetus to address the problem, and we've had some successes.、Uh, but it's interesting; governments can be very, very shy when it comes to tackling climate change.、Um, and it's amazing when you consider the magnitude of the problem, what we're up against, and what many have called an existential threat. 
and here I'm asking for what the end at the end of the day just really amounts to a sticker. <laughs> so it's been fascinating. It's been a fascinating few years for me. Who I think I came into this a little naive. Oh, big problem, simple, easy, low cost thing that can perhaps make us feel more connected to the problem and, and help us address it. If that was your elevator pitch, the most people would say, "Tell me more, Rob." Right? Yeah, but but a lot of politicians, and I think this will segue to one of the articles. Uh, I will never forget the reply I got, and I believe I mentioned this the last time I was here from one local politician here in Toronto, who, after I gave him my my elevator pitch, he said, "Quote, but people don't want to see that," and and I think that's. Um, it's important that we see it, and it's, it's important that we see it for what it is. And there has been, uh, just over the past couple of weeks, more and more articles actually being fairly transparent about the problem that we face. Uh, and I think that's a good thing, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. Mm. Um, but, but that's sort of what I'm up to. We've had some successes. Um, one interesting thing, which is kind of exciting, uh, I recently, and I haven't yet sort of put this out on, on Facebook, so this is probably news Ooh, for you Breaking well. news? Um, breaking news. Uh, <laughs> I won this award from Friends of Europe. Um, thank you. Uh, which means I'm going to be in Europe in September for this, for this climate work. Um, and I'm going to be at this conference and I get to share, you know, this sort of work with, with people from all over, actually from all over the world are going to sort of um, convene in Tallinn, Estonia. Um, and so it'll be a good opportunity to share our work. But I was listening to a podcast that featured, I think it was uh, Cardinal Official, a few other sort of Canadian MCs, hip hop artists. And they were saying, we had to make it big in the States, in Europe and so on, before we were taken seriously in Canada, even though we'd been doing all this work in Canada. And not until we had that sort of legitimacy from beyond our borders, were we then taken seriously in Canada. So I'm thinking like, oh, Maybe maybe this is the way to sort of get accelerate some progress. Sure, Rob Sharkey, uh, Rob Sharkey of uh, uh, our horizon, a big in Europe. Or yeah, like, yeah, it's kind of yeah. like the as seen on TV, like oh, sticker, totally. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then, oh, the Europeans are considering this. Well, may maybe we should get on this. Hey, I've been knocking on your door for the last five years, you know? Um, so, so I think, I think that'll be interesting. And I'm still working on a book, uh, that'll be out. Uh, it'll be January. And I think the book will also be a handy resource uh, for both people in government who are interested in this, uh, and also climate activists who might mm. be asking the question, well, What's the thinking behind this? What's, what's some of the research behind this? Will this be impactful? Um, so that'll be a good resource uh, to then empower activists to, to, to advocate for the thing in their own community. So I, I have a, a question. Actually, the, the question that literally just occurred to me. I wasn't mm. planning on asking you this, but uh, I was thinking about that is, you know, one of the things when, when we were talking about this, I, I would have to imagine it's about three years ago now that you first came on the show. I want to say, I want to say close to four, close almost to four. by now. It was a little, so, yeah. It's been so long, Rob. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the things that one of the things that one of the demo images uh, mm. that you were shopping is a picture of a caribou, mm -hmm. and uh, and there's mm. some others. Uh, there's some with polar bears and whatnot. And w what occurs to me now, because even a few years ago, I mean, even just over the last say four years, mm. I, I feel and and perhaps this is selection bias on my part. We should acknowledge that that's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, Google, it's a logical fallacy. Google it, um, but. I feel like the immediacy and the obviousness of the weather-related, climate-linked, likely-linked disasters has become exponentially more apparent in those mm -hmm. four years. And so my question to you is, do you feel like if you were designing those test stickers now, or if you mm -hmm. were asked tomorrow to roll out a series of stickers, would you consider the fact that perhaps – because it's in the news so much that mm -hmm. perhaps weather-related stickers might be more effective than nature-related stickers. Mm -hmm. what, are your, what are your thoughts on the specific imagery that's chosen for the images? Yeah, and, and to that, uh, we do have some images. So because for, like, we don't yeah. have polar bears, right? But we do have yeah. lakes yeah. near us. There's one sort of, uh, for, for your listeners here in Toronto, we'll remember this iconic image of uh, the Don Valley River. There was a, a flood. And um, the GO train was inundated and people had to be taken off by rafts and so on. And uh, so we actually have that as a sticker. Of course, uh, I don't distribute it as often because, you know, I might have the digital version, but to, to print something and share it ends up costing a little bit more. Um, I think when it comes to – so I sort of when – I, when I talk to politicians at any level of government, I say think of 
what I'm sharing with you as a design template, right? And there's lots of room for for what might be uh, a series of five or six image here in your jurisdiction. And perhaps what's more compelling in a coastal community uh, like Vancouver uh, might be different from something when we think of uh, BC interior with the, the, I believe, the mountain uh, pine forest beetle. Um, how that's devastating the forest is quite dry. And next thing you know, there's there's forest fires and so on. That might not resonate as much in, in say, Toronto, right, mm. where we might experience different impacts. So I think there's often room for, for local variation. And one of the sort of – and I think this ties into one of the articles we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. later – one of the sort of guiding principles I had in in trying to decide what are some images just to get people to think about conceptually as we're advocating for this thing um, to move it forward. Do you go quite extreme or do you go a little softer? Hmm. And my thinking was largely driven by what's more politically possible. So if we go with a really jarring image, my suspicion is that a politician might recoil from that. If we go something a little warmer, a little less sort of controversial, uh, then it's more likely that that thing might be passed into law. And and with sort of further iterations, because these um, these things are sort of uh, replaced due to wear and tear and, and what's called adaptation or the exhaustion effect, where people essentially take just get used to that image and it sort of fades into the background. Mm. So best practices when it comes to this sort of intervention in other contexts is to refresh that image every, say, two years or so. And so the thinking is with subsequent iterations, you can then sort of amp up, um, say, the the fear dial or however you want to label it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the interesting thing is, so here I come in with something that, that I think is quite uh, not that jarring, right? I mean, it's it's a caribou. It's and it's a healthy looking caribou too. Mm. It's not an emaciated one, um, and and the com- compromise uh, that was come to in say North Vancouver, where the concept was passed into law. So there's a bylaw that says you got to have these things on your pumps. The design though was left open, and it was quite watered down by industry to the point that what's on pumps there right now is a, a sort of a cartoonish picture of a tire that says. Uh, inflate your tires to maintain air pressure, and that'll save that'll save you money on gas, right? You're, I was wondering what you were referring to. Yes, we will be coming back to this topic. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's amazing though because, like, if you think of say messaging as existing on a spectrum between positive and negative, um, for lack of a better term, that tire messaging might be quote unquote positive, right? And that, oh, there's a helpful tip. I'm not experiencing any dissidence, uh, no discomfort. Um, I don't think that sufficiently challenges the status quo. That says, oh, the world's got a problem. We're underinflating our tires. No, that's not the problem. Right? <laughs> it also implies that if your tires are full, job done. Job like, done. There, there you, you go. go, right? Let's you just know? carry on as, as we're carrying on. Um, the reality is I think a bit of discomfort is a good thing. I think mm-hmm. a little bit of discomfort, dissatisfaction with the status quo um, that's a place where innovation then springs from, right? Mm. Not not complacency, not this sort of oh, I just gotta inflate inflate my tires a little bit more. I, I think I thought of a really good mm. example uh, to highlight um, how uh, context matters. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, and the specific example I was thinking of was uh, so in Toronto. On your example, you just gave uh, of you know part of the metro system being submerged, mm. um, an image of like people being rafted off a off a subway car like if someone if we could find a really high res image yeah. of that and make that into a sticker i think in toronto that would be highly effective because mm-hmm. what you're reminding people of is immense inconvenience that's going to cost them money mm-hmm. and and it reminds them about that those inconveniences that are going to cost them money aren't things they would have thought about if they hadn't seen that sticker right it mm-hmm. thoughts of well what else haven't i considered right it starts a ball rolling mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. i think it i think it inspires uh curiosity yes. in a topic and in a way that's useful yeah. whereas if you took arguably the identical theoretical situation as far as like the type of thing Mm -hmm. and you put a picture of a bunch of burning homes and and put Mm -hmm. that in alberta Mm -hmm. you would be taken to the town square and because what you're not reminding people of is the dangers of climate change you're reminding them of their home that they lost and Mm -hmm. i think they would burn you at the stake for that yeah and but arguably it's the same thing yeah it's the same type of reminder but with very different like i wouldn't i wouldn't even advocate for that i think that would be counterproductive to do that in alberta but i think that that the the metro stick would be extremely effective in toronto mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, because of the context so it's just an important uh, just an interesting note i think on that yeah well i think and we'll touch on this in, in one of the articles we're going to explore uh, written by barry saxifrage that was in the national observer um i think that 
a guiding principle in this sort of advocacy and questions of messaging. Is it is it a little too soft? Is it a little too hard? Positive, negative, et cetera. Um, I think a guiding principle can just be transparency, honesty. What does this problem look like? And let's stop being paternalistic. There's so many people that tiptoe on this thing and, oh, well, we don't want to offend anyone and we don't, might this make a person anxious and might this, let's treat people like adults. Let's treat people as, hey, we've got a challenge and let's be honest and open about it. And I, I think only then we'll actually address it in a meaningful way. And I, one of the, I think, encouraging things on that note that I have seen in these articles that have been coming out recently um, is that quite a few people are taking that position. And mm. there seems to be, at least sort of in my social media feed, recognizing that we sometimes are in a bit of a bubble, um, a recognition that there is a time now for we need to be honest about this challenge. We're too complacent. And if we're just showing the the hopeful, optimistic scenarios or some medium scenario, um, that might not incent enough action to address the problem it's it's actually healthy and good to show sometimes some of the the worst case scenarios even though if the probability might be small um it's it's healthy and and important yeah what also like the specific outcome you're trying to inspire matters right like Mm. so it's the same reason why you know Mm -hmm. if you just to use another uh, you know hypothetical another metaphor uh you know, if you if we're talking about a kid taking cookies and mm. your response to that is to beat them with a stick, mm-hmm. you're not teaching them not to eat cookies. Mm-hmm. You're teaching them to be afraid of the stick, right? And so we have to be careful that the message we're sending is actually the message we want people to have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that this is a solvable problem that needs action, not uh, the end is nigh. Yeah. Right? Even if the end might be nigh. Yeah. That's not, it's not, it's not the thing we want to promote because that's, even if it's true, it might not be the most useful part of the mm-hmm. truth. Yeah. And, and so context is important. Um, and to that, uh, uh, David Roberts wrote a piece in Vox.com uh, where he explores this. And and he said, you know, not everything, and he was sort of looking at the article uh, by David Wallace Wells that appeared in, in New York Magazine, which is this one that caused all this controversy and discussion on, on messaging. And he said, listen, when I'm writing an article, there's no formula that, okay, so every bit of negative negativity in paragraph two and three and four has to then later be balanced by positivity in paragraph, you know, seven, eight, nine. Like, we live in a world where we're bombarded by a variety of, of messages and some on their own can stand alone be, hey, here's a problem, you know, and, and solutions exist elsewhere. Uh, but, but I think there is this tendency that e- this expectation almost from decision makers, uh, be it in government or business, that you have to always balance your message. And I think there is place for, hey, we have a problem. I'm pointing at the problem. I'm showing you the problem. Other people can then chime in with solutions and, and hopeful things. Uh, but it's important to not take interventions just sort of in this isolated context, but recognize that we live in sort of a social a social world where we are exposed to all sorts of messages. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a really great place to take a nice relaxed break, Rob. Let's do it. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll be back with Rob Shirky, the executive director of Our Founder and Chill Dude, uh, right after this break. Megan's going to tell us what we're going to listen to. We made to fight. God damn them all. I was told we All right, we are back. This is the summer relaxed edition of the Green Majority. I'm speaking at least half my normal speed today. It's kind of nice. Thanks for joining me, Rob. My pleasure. I'm here with Rob Shirky, who's the executive director of uh, Our Horizon. Uh, we spent the first little bit there talking largely about impl- uh, what our horizon does and implications thereof. If you're just tuning in, we're going to do a little bit of a pivot now because uh, there, while there is one more sort of fun topic mixed in with it, uh, it was to some degree inspired by a news item. So uh, let's uh, let's do that, Rob. I'm going to let you introduce the article and then we'll we'll toss it back and forth. Uh, but as a tease, this will somehow work its way to dating. That's my tease. Take <laughs> yes. Away. Um, so I caught this in the National Observer, nationalobserver.com. The title of the article is These Missing Charts May Change the Way You Think About Fossil Fuel Addiction. It was written by Barry Saxifrage, uh, a researcher, author. Uh, his thing, which I really, really enjoy, is he takes loads and loads of data, converts them into easy-to-read charts. Uh, his website is Visual Carbon, and you can find that at saxifrages.org. And in this piece... Um, He looked at BP's British Petroleum Statistical Review of World Energy, which is an annual report, uh, and it's it's a widely used report, uh, you know, in the industry, uh, many, many pages long, loads of spreadsheets, loads of data available. And what was conspicuously absent, as he noticed, is 
the answer to the simple question, how much fuel is the world burning each year? So he dug through the data, came up with those charts, and it's a bit discouraging, right? Uh, in, and this is from the article, in 25 of the last 26 years, we burned more fossil fuels than the year before. And the only one year where that wasn't the case was 2009 due to this global recession. He then sort of looks at, well, okay, what about a uh, percentage of fossil fuels as a, as a percentage rather of, um, of overall energy? And, and it's almost a flat line. It basically hasn't changed over the last few decades. So in 1990, um, fossil fuel share of global energy represented 88%. Uh, maybe if several years later, 87%, 2015, uh, 85%. So, so you're looking, excuse me, 86%. You're looking basically at like very, very little change. And he breaks it down then in terms of oil, uh, coal, um, uh, and gas. And I really encourage you to look at this article because the charts actually show that we're not – we're not doing as much um, as we think we're doing on this. And I think you mentioned uh, selection bias, which mm. this might very well be related. I'm not sure. And so correct me if I'm wrong. But a bias that we tend to have is um, I'll see newspaper articles. We're making progress on, on this issue. And ele- electric vehicle sales are up and so on and so on. So I have this impression in my head that we're making progress just because of what I'm exposed to. Um, but digging deep into the data suggests that that maybe we aren't, right? Mm. And so uh, – and his conclusion and sort of in, in a lot of the articles I've been reading um, is, is essentially that we need to be transparent um, about this problem. And it's not until we sort of appreciate uh, the nature of the problem, how, how little progress we've actually made – will we then sort of be catalyzed in, into taking meaningful action? Um, so I encourage people to read that um, because it is important. Um, the, the segue, though, to dating, and this is where it gets <laughs> a little bit personal, perhaps a little more interesting. And it's funny, too, because we've got this thing called climate change, which in some respects is abstract and, and this thing we can talk about in sort of an academic way. But it touches on our lives in a very, very real way. So here I am. Um, a single male in Toronto, uh, dates are a swipe away, right, with any number of apps. And, and I meet people. I go on dates, right? And first date, second date, uh, I like to bring up the question, so kids, what, what's your position on, is that something you want? Is that something you don't want? And in my experience, it seems to be that the, the people that I tend to date do want kids, and I don't want kids. So that's a bit of a deal breaker, right? We could still enjoy each other's company uh, in the short term. But eventually, that sort of brings the question to a head where, you know, we're diverging down down different paths, right? Um, and, and so it's interesting. And I sometimes – so I'll share with you some of my rationale for not wanting kids. Um, there's all sorts of, you know, there's, there's more freedom. There's the finances. You can think of a lot of things. When I was younger, part of my motivation was this growing concern of – Okay, so we've got we've got um, problems around climate change, around resource consumption. Do I really want to contribute one more to this problem? And of course, there was an article that I that I think you came across mm-hmm. that uh, basically suggests one of the biggest things that we can do to reduce our our carbon footprint is actually to not have kids, and like by orders of magnitude over sort of the the second biggest thing, right? And so that that was a bit of a motivator, but over the years it's become sort of almost a risk management thing for me where I say to myself, okay, I'm going to still continue to work hard at, at trying to address this problem. And I'm, and I'm going to be hopeful that, that we can sort of turn a corner on this thing, but there's a chance that, that we may not. Right. Um, and given that that might be the case, and this is just risk management. This is, I mean, this makes sense hedging your bets, right? Do I want to bring a being into this world one that I would love and and care for and really want the the best for, do I want to bring a being into this world where maybe our collective future actually isn't all that bright, isn't all that optimistic? And so I say, well, I'm not sure that I do. And that's, for me, one of the larger things that informs my decision uh, to not have kids, right? And it's interesting then in the dating realm, and this is why I'm like, sometimes I'm just amazed by how far apart I am uh, from the person sitting right across from me, you know, at, at the other table, having, having a drink or whatever, we're getting to know each other where they live in this world where, Oh, everything's going to be fine, you know, and, and sort of this, this willful blindness. Um, and I'm, like, well, I'm not, I'm not sure that's the case. And so it actually makes, I think dating tricky in 2017 where, um, I think a good chunk of the people that I find on, you know, name your app, right. I don't want to plug apps here. <laughs> um, 
uh, are kind of oblivious to this, and it doesn't factor into mm. their decision making. So, well, I think, and this is uh, this is where I'll segue a little bit mm. into uh, the article that I pulled before bringing it back to the personal for mm-hmm. me. But I think mm-hmm. like that's one of those uh, that's one of those things where it's it's very much I think related to this neoliberal uh, mm. idea of. Uh, consumption, but also ownership, right? Mm-hmm. It's not good enough that there's a car I can use. It has to be my car mm-hmm. because otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, if it's not my car, if I'm just borrowing your car, I don't drive. Mm-hmm. Listeners mm-hmm. know this, but theoretically, mm-hmm. we're hypothetically here. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Rob, I don't think you own a car, but you drive. Yeah, I've got my G license and right. recently my M1 license. Vroom, vroom. Vroom, vroom. I got your helmet <laughs> here on the table. Yeah. Um, so like, it's one of those things where like, I feel that sense of like, well, it's not good enough for this thing to exist. It has to be my thing. Right. Mm-hmm, and, that, mm-hmm. and this is at a very basic level. That's a very strong sort of undercurrent of our culture. Good. You know, for, I was going to say for better or worse, it's it's for worse. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. um, and I think this applies to progeny, too. I think this applies to children. I think mm-hmm. that it's not good enough to enjoy the joy of a child. I have to. Mm-hmm. It has to be my blood. It has to be my, you know, family strain. And, and there's, I think, an incredibly deep. Yeah. Much, much deeper than than the than the surface level of, of sort of cultural neoliberalism, that this runs genetically. It's, it's a genetic imperative, and I've, I feel that it's one we have to fight. Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna talk, I want to talk really briefly here just about the article on neoliberalism and relate it, but then I'll come back to what I think the solution to that problem mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea here, and uh, what I'm pulling is from a Guardian article uh, called Neoliberalism uh, Has Condus Into Fighting Climate Change as Individuals. And it's basically it's just a really well-worded version of something I've said 100 times on the show, which is worded better because uh, <laughs> they're not doing it stream of consciousness they actually had editors and thought about it um but it's it's basically saying that you know you can for every time you you know choose whatever eco-friendly shampoo and do this and that mm-hmm. and solar panels and, and bike to work and do all this stuff it's wiped out in an instant by a single extra mine being built mm-hmm. you know it wipes out all of those things for thousands of people every time a single new mine gets approved or a single new oil field gets approved mm-hmm. and and that this idea that we can consume our way out of a problem is one that is being promoted intentionally because this allows uh, that, you know, sort of it delays the problem for the people that are profiting off the problem, but it also makes sure that it takes control of the solution because there are more of the solutions than that. That's a way to solve the problem. If you're not worried about timeline, it does eventually solve the problem. Uh, I would argue not in time, Um, but you know, it does eventually solve the problem, but it means it's sort of like it's sort of like you know, once we get to the tipping point where uh, oil companies are actually like inarguably unviable, not just like oh they're unviable on paper and it's probably going to happen soon, but like it really doesn't work. We're going to see them flip so fast into mm-hmm. renewable energy companies; it'll make your head spin, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not it's they have to maintain control and they're and they're taking control of the pace at which this happens. Like the, we've seen things uh, we reported a while ago on uh, things like the Koch brothers uh, pushing for laws that prevent rooftop solar because if there's going to be solar in Texas, they're going to own it at an industrial scale, mm-hmm. and they don't want people putting it on the roofs because that takes away their revenue stream, right? And that's just one example of this much larger problem. Um, so while we're, I want to note that, you know, while making all those choices are good and you should do them, uh, don't stress yourself out to do that one thing that's like financially unviable or, or is going to cause you mm-hmm. harm in your life. Do all the things that are that are that are accessible and, and, and not easy. We should we should be willing to put a little effort into this, but all the things that are not harmful to you to do. And if you have any remaining energy and, and any remaining, uh, I think, emotional feeling like you're not doing enough, um, turn it into political power. That's mm-hmm. the point of the argu- article here, because poli- your political dollar is worth a hundred times the few pennies of personal change that you might make in your life. Like the one person's power as a single voter, as useless as that vote may feel to you individually, is still infinitely more powerful than every personal choice you could ever make uh, without bankrupting yourself, you know, without, you know, <laughs> without making yourself unsustainable mm-hmm. as a human being. So with the six minutes left, I'm going to relate this back to relationship structure. So I feel like kids are pretty nice when they're other people's. Uh, I have mm. no personal interest in children. 
Uh, but I, that, I'm not a, like a curmudgeon about kids, and, no, and nor is Rob. I don't, I don't mean to no. imply that Rob is. Kids but, are great. But, uh, you know, they're, they're great. I recently got uh, a niece, and, and the, the, more, the more cognizant the, the, that she gets, the more, uh, the more fascinated by it I am. You know, I have to admit that when it was, you know, first out and it was just sort of a ball of flesh, <laughs> it was sort of very hard. As the person yeah. whose kid it wasn't, like I had very, like I was sort of unsure how to feel about it. Mm-hmm. Not, not as far as like a do I like this individual or not, but it was like it wasn't an individual and I'm not used to being around kids. And so there's this whole process for me around like – just even fitting my head around this concept that this is a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as hmm. she's growing up, um, it's becoming a little easier for me. And of course the sort of natural biological protection and, and love and all those things, hmm. uh, is sort of flowing more naturally. Uh, you know, being recognized for the first time, last time I saw her was really nice and, and was a big, was a big thing as an individual. So things like that, but here's the thing, like I can enjoy my brother's kid. I think as much as I'd be able to enjoy my kid. And I, and I feel like, one of the things that I'm not saying that people should go out and do this. Like there, I'm not starting to say that there's some moral responsibility or that I want to encourage people to do this, but I want to just mention for the sake of like pondering it. And maybe does this fit me? Would this satisfy my needs that, mm. you know, there's that old saying that, that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it does, but we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it does take a village to raise a child, but we don't we use villages to raise children anymore. We use TV and and you know a third of each of the parents occasionally every other weekend when they're free, and the rest of the raising often gets done by you know school teachers who are being chronically underpaid and you know whatever. And this, so I mean, it's it's a really bad shape. So I feel like it would be better for our society and for the environment if we sort of expanded our acceptance of what a meaningful relationship with with children and other human beings is and that's why i encourage people even though i'm uh, you know i'm currently single so i'm not currently mm. operating this you <laughs> listen to two single people talk about dating hello this is Wh- what's the number to call in sir <laughs> <laughs> uh megan is standing by i'm sure I'm oh, not- oh the board is just lighting up with calls yeah, eh? yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not giving out the phone <laughs> it's, they can they can email the show if they okay uh, is that uh, uh, is that you know? I just want people to consider. Like, I know a number of people who um, are very happy in non-traditional relationships, uh, and that we've got. I think we really sort of bought into this actually quite new idea of sort of modern uh, monogamy. And I don't even mean that as far as like you know. I, I think people should sleep around. I think mm-hmm. that I mean, if you want to, do it. <laughs> Enjoy your body. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think that people should like consider the idea that, you know, maybe just getting if if it, having children in their life is something they really want, but they're not, but they're feeling conflicted about that. Maybe just get really involved with somebody else's hmm. kid, right? Like you can get a lot of those same feelings without the stretch marks, ladies. Yeah. By the way, um, you know, and I think it's just, but it, but we have this cultural thing that that doesn't count. Yeah, and I think that huh. that idea. I don't think I'm not trying to tell people to like, you know, change the relationship status. I'm saying it's okay if you want to. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying maybe we should have a think about what we consider our need is, is our need mm-hmm. to actually breed or is our need to have children in our lives. And yeah. if that's the conversation we're having, then I think really having some adult conversations with other people in our lives about, you know, you know, maybe we could change our relationship. So here's the thing. So I, I'm, and this is a hypothetical person. I'm, there's not uh-huh. a person I'm speaking about, but you know, if there was like a friend of mine that was like having a kid and say like, we'd been good friends for a long time, but I don't see them so much anymore, mm-hmm. but I really feel like I want children in my life. But, you know, you could go and you could just hang out with them and play with the kid, or mm-hmm. you could go to them and say, I would like to actively be a part of helping you raise this child that, you know, you're still the biological parents mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking that you to tell the kid to call me, you know, mommy or daddy. Um, but I'd like to like really support you and, and really be a part of this child's life and and that not only would that mean an awful lot to that child who would almost certainly benefit from that Mm -hmm. but allows you to to develop a very non-traditional relationship with these people that are still friends of yours you're not necessarily i mean you Mm -hmm. could but you're not Mm -hmm. necessarily engaging any sexual relationship with with the the biological parents Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. you are essentially becoming part of that family yeah and i think that that's really cool yeah (laughs) and i think that we should i think that we should talk about that you know what and i agree and and on that i'll share a, a a personal little story um, so I grew up in a very traditional sort of a, a household, right, where this discussion would just be what sort of and, and judged, right, just so foreign and bizarre. And um, But something that I found challenging was so I want to say a decade ago, I was seeing a woman who, uh, who was lovely. I, I adored her. I loved her. And that was one of the handful of relationships I've had where I, I could see a future with this person, right? 
And, um, and this person, as she was becoming sort of um, getting more in touch with herself and, and who she is, uh, she realized that she was more attracted to people who identified as, as female than male, right? And that then sort of spelled that, – that was the end of our relationship, right? And we lost touch, but I know that she's doing well and so on now. But for me, I thought to myself, you know, oh, goodness, I love this person so much. And I began to think, well, what if there's some sort of world where, uh, where there's three of us in a relationship? So she has someone uh, that she enjoys and, and maybe – and I, I, I sort of got this this image in my head of – can I come home after a, a day of work to maybe there's two women there? And it's sort of, it's strange. It really, and maybe there's a child in the picture. And it took me a while to wrap my head around that idea because that's not what I sort of, that wasn't, that wasn't my programming my, mm. as a kid. And, and I want to note just because I think it's really important, Rob, yeah. because I'm sure there's a couple of people that are giggling at home, but, yeah. you know, rolling their eyes saying, oh, sure, you know, lots of guys say they'd love to two women. We're not even talking sexual. Like this woman, no. this woman, this theoretical possibly woman yeah. isn't just already just finished telling you that they're not interested in men sexually. Yeah. Right? So this is, this would be just, simply a family structure yeah. that for you personally in this hypothetical doesn't involve sex. No, and, and this was something that just I started to mentally explore, like just to kind of, you know, when you're really into someone and they're like, well, this, it's not going to work out. And so you're like, oh, plan B, plan C, how else can we make this work, right? And, and But I had this lovely image in my head of this loving home. I come home after work. There's two two people maybe on the couch and they're just with this kid. And I'm like, that that's actually really warm, inviting, beautiful. And then I actually began to think about a lot of these other issues like, well, wait a second, what if, so in a two-person relationship, if one person becomes unemployed, well, you're just, you're just cutting your resources by half there and, and that might impact things. Whereas if there's three, well, you know, again, going back to like my risk management approach, oh, that's, that's a bit more sensible maybe. If you have two people raising a child, um, splitting all their time and energy and so on. What if you had a, a third person in that relationship, right? Or what if you lived in some shared home where, uh, you know, there's uh, maybe not necessarily a genetic uncle or, or aunt, but someone that sort of played that role, right? So it's interesting. I do think, and even when we sort of put it in the context of of sort of a lot of these environmental issues and you sort of, uh, on the issue of having kids, I think you use the word ownership and mine has to be mm. genetically. I'm like, I think we can... Uh, express those those values that maybe there is some genetic drive to express of care and nurturing and wanting to to instill uh, you know sort of a set of ethics into a younger person. You could do that in in you know a relationship structure that maybe looks a little bit different than than what we're used to, and I'm sure that then comes with um, a, a whole bunch of say environmental benefits from sort of having fewer kids. Relating it back to that that article. So anyway, definitely a lot of food for thought. Um, but but I think it's worth challenging maybe some of these traditional notions um, that, that may not serve us all that well. I think that's a great place to take our second break. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Rob. We're going to come back uh, and talk a little bit about some news stories. I just decided, like, it just... You know, there's a couple of really nasty things that happen, but I just, it just, it's just not in my heart today. So what I'm going to do is uh, on the fly here, I'm making a decision that the two really heavy news stories that are there, they're important and, and you should know about them, but I'm going to encourage you to just check the website and, uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what they are probably in the middle section, but uh, I'm, it's, it's not in me today. I don't think I want to dig into them today. So know that they exist. Um, you can check out the articles. I'll probably mention them when we come back. Uh, but what we're going to do, I think we largely, when we come back, I think is talk about this one article here from DSmog uh, that's about mining and about cleaning up mining and the, the understanding that if we want a renewable energy future, we have to come to terms to a little bit with some of the faults of mining. Uh, so we'll do that when we come back. Thank you very much to, for Rob uh, Shirky for joining me so far. We'll be back with Rob in just a moment. I'm your host, Saren Kaster, and you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM and our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners. Megan, for the second song, what will All right, we are back. You're listening to the super relaxed, laid back sit under a palm tree or beach umbrella in your backyard edition of the green majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Saren Kaster, and we're in the last 15 or so minutes here. Uh, if you were uh, listening just before the break, um, I decided we're going to take a pass on the really heavy news this week. It's important. You should know that it exists. Uh, and we'll probably come back to it, but I've just, 
I can't do it today. We're not going to read it today. So if you urgently want to know what couple of really depressing things happened recently, you can check the website. I will post them, um, but very likely we're going to come back and, and talk about it another week instead. So the the least depressing news item that I th- I feel like I can handle today, Rob, is, uh, is not really news so much as just a really interesting article uh, about mining. And it's by uh, James Wilt. It's posted on uh, DSmog uh, Canada. And it's called why we need to clean up mining if we want a renewable energy economy. Now, this is something that that I feel probably has been said to you on numerous occasions, you talk to a lot of politicians. And and so you you deal with potentially non receptive people more Mm -hmm. often than I do, Rob, Uh, we talk about a lot of non receptive people, I'm being super polite today. Do you see how polite I'm being today, Rob? I don't recognize this person. Yeah, Yeah. I'm so laid back today. Um, non-responsive people more than I do. So perhaps, perhaps you will have more experience of this than me, but it's one of those things where it's like one of those like eye rolling, like you've got to be kidding me. You didn't just say that, mm-hmm. uh, things where like, you know, and people still do it. I still see them doing it on social media with this like, Oh, well you're taking a plane. Therefore climate change is a hoax, which is the, but it's a slightly more valid point, but it's the way it's said and the intention and the, and the lack of understanding on the, on behalf of the person saying it, it's in sort of the same category as far as its use, not necessarily its truth, but its use is this, uh, which is the, well, you know, if you want to build us a bunch of solar panels, you're going to beat a bunch of metals. Mm-hmm. Uh, often the people saying that think it's a much better point than it is because it's a problem we thought of and we're, and it's, yes, we know. And that's part of the problem. And it's a, it's a less of a problem than climate change, but it's still important. Um, so it's not a really good sort of zinger. It's not nearly as good of a zinger as people on Twitter seem to think it is. Uh, but it is a legitimate point. Uh, just, yeah, just in a different way. Um, so the article is interesting and what's talking about is, um, the boom, uh, in what's expected. So, uh, who is it? The international energy agency is predicting a 17 fold, uh, increase between 2015 and 2050 in specifically just solar. Um, that is a vast, vast increase. Uh, in Canada alone, we've more than doubled uh, in the last few few years. Uh, you know, but almost all of that, uh, I, I, I believe it's. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I believe it's upwards of eighty percent of the solar installation uh, in the last few years has been on Ontario, which is pretty much exclusively due to the feed-in tariff. Uh, we're expecting a lot more once Alberta's uh, sort of like. Uh, tax sharing investment program kicks in and some stuff. So hopefully that's going to accelerate quite a bit in Canada. Um, But, you know, this is particularly important for Canada because um, one of the things people forget a lot is that Toronto is the mining capital of the world, not because that's where they do the mining, but that's because that's where all the office, that's where all the head offices are. These are all Canadian based companies, which means that their official head office is in Canada and, and, and specifically in Toronto. And so we have a lot of, you know, as far as Canadians, whether or not any of us actually work for any of these mining companies, there is a lot of mining in Canada. And even all the mining in the rest of the world, almost all of those companies have a, their head office in Toronto. And so we're kind of in the belly of the beast here as far as mining. And what the point of the article is, is, uh, well, there's two things. And, and this is where I'll tease one of the stories I'm really not interested in getting into today, but it, I can't not mention it, which is these companies also cause a lot of death. <laughs> mm-hmm. A lot of people get murdered for trying to oppose these uh companies and uh and that's something that people are like whoa that sounds like something you'd need to prove because it sounds unlikely uh, we're not getting into it read the article it happens uh it's also happening at an increasingly alarming rate mm. uh as imp- a feeling of impunity uh passes forward that's as far as i'm going into that today mm. uh but one of the things we have to think about is that we do and this is something that gets brought up that's really uh, i think a really important point which is that if you know we simply proceed with this mining as the way it's being done, then we're trading one problem for another problem. Um, You know, the localization of mining waste versus the blanketing the globe Hmm. issue of climate change, you could say that it's still a better problem to have. But I mean, that's sort of like, you know, do you want to be shot in the face or do you want to be shot in the guts? It's sort of the devil's bargain, right? So Hmm. it's the devil's choice. So, um, one of the things that's being said, and it's, I think something that like as environmentalists, I think often we have a lot of knee jerk. Well, mining is terrible. Everything's terrible. What we have to understand is that, you know, some, the, there is a point there, which is that really the thing we can't get past right now without an, without an advance in technology that we currently don't have. So we're not talking about like, there's a lot of technologies where they have proof of concept or the physics has been proven and they just don't have a workable or, or model or the technology does exist, but isn't scalable yet. Um, this is not that we don't have any non metal 
way to do this stuff at a large scale at a cost that makes any sense and it's going to for any time soon maybe two years from now they'll develop you know vegetable based materials that are hard enough and of the right Mm. you know temperature and whatever properties to to mimic this but it's not it's not coming anytime soon so for the time being we just have to accept that the renewable energy revolution is going to require a massive uptick in an already you know massive area that is mining and uh, a lot of this mining may happen in Canada. A lot of it's going to happen in Latin America. But what the article is talking about is that there currently are a lot of much better than you'd think ways to reduce the impact of mining. And it has to do with like dry vertical stacking uh, projects for tailings rather than creating these vast incredibly un- unfathomably toxic pools. Uh, it has to do with using uh, renewable energy or even, you know, for heaven's sake, uh, <laughs> just natural gas instead of diesel fuel for a lot of the machinery. There is a lot of that can be done. There's a lot of that's sort of on the production side. On the other side, there's a lot can be can be done around, uh, you know, disruption to the land during the mining, uh, the ability of things you can do to not destroy the land permanently that make it infinitely easier to reclaim later. Like there's a lot of best practices that can be done that we do have now that are simply not being implemented. And so we've got about nine minutes here left. I'm going to uh, hand it to more or less to you, Rob, to to comment on this. But I sort of what I want to talk about for the last few minutes here is the idea that I think we have to sort of I I think we know where we have to sort of start compromising a little bit. And I don't mean Mm. compromising as in being okay with things that are awful. But I think um, we can't fight mining and oil companies and nuclear power and uh, we can't fight all the options. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. now, the best option, the option we want requires a not so great component, which is the mining component. And so I want to, I want to hear from you for a few minutes, Rob, on, on that, on sort of not, not calling a truce as in letting these companies do whatever they want. We need, they need to be heavily regulated and mm. they need to, we, we need to do some work. But as far as like our work with mining, just sort of going out and putting it out there. Yes, we understand that this is going to require a lot of mining to do this, uh, to do the renewable energy route. Uh, we, that's why we want to make sure it gets done in the right way, but we want to work like essentially, you know, people say people essentially make the argument that we should be reaching out and compromising with oil companies. I say, Mm -hmm. hell no. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think we do need to be reaching out and compromising with mining companies if we want to have this renewable energy future. And I would like to give you about seven minutes to comment on that, Rob. Um, I mean, no matter what activity humans engage in, I, I once had someone describe human beings as we're just tubes, right? We consume things, things, things come in, things go out. There's, there's waste on the other side, right? Um, so it's inescapable. Whatever we do will have some sort of an impact. So the question is then, how do we minimize that, right? Um, and so given that we do need to transition towards renewables and so on, given that of the options that we have, that's sort of the, the least harmful approach. Okay, let's head in that direction. A concern that you raise, though, which I think is interesting, is climate change is very much global, right? I burn some fossil fuels here, it's entering the atmosphere, uh, we're, all, we're all contributing in, in some way, and that's going to be felt no matter where you are on the planet. Whereas mining can be localized. And oh boy, here's an opportunity for me, you know, in this part of the world to outsource, to sort of put all that stuff, uh, these negative impacts in another part of the world. So I think that's something that we have to be mindful of. Um, for, for Mindful? <laughs> Well done. Well done. I couldn't let it be serious for more than a few minutes. Okay. I appreciate that. That was good. Um, um, So uh, here I am thinking of puns now. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be the bonus show. Save it. Yeah, the the bonus bonus show. show. Okay. Um, So, so maybe there's this sort of NIMBY aspect that we, that we want to avoid, but I think that also speaks to um, going back to some of my work, the the importance of transparency, right? So Mm -hmm. I think a guard, a check against some of the potential wrongdoing, some of the potential things that we don't want to see coming from mining, be it um, uh, environmental impact, being uh, death um, that's in, that's in this article that you're going to share online. Um, If, if we're transparent about that, if that thing is exposed, and I love this, this is from Justice Louis Brandes, uh, passed away now, but former Supreme Court Justice in the United States, um, uh, in one of, a dis- one of his decisions said that uh, sunlight is the best disinfectant, meaning you-, you shine some light on the thing, you're transparent about it. And if enough people are upset about that, well, that's where change comes from. Mm. Uh, conversely, if you have that thing in the dark, if you have that supply chain sort of hidden and-, and no one's privy to that, and I just see that final solar panel on the shelf that I'm putting on my, uh, uh, on my roof and I have no idea where it came from and, and everything that was involved in-, in getting it to my roof – 
um, that's when you could sort of perpetuate a lot of a lot of uh, socially undesirable things, things that are unsustainable. And so I, I think if we can, you know, and, and I think there's a lot that can be sort of looked through this frame of say distancing. Pick your topic, uh, be it mining, be it uh, say even our, our food, the food that ends up on our plate. The further removed I am from from the thing, the more oblivious I am to what it took for that thing to get on my plate or what it took for those panels to get on my roof, then the less likely that entire system is to change. As soon as you sort of um, make that visible, as soon as you help to draw a lot of connections, say even between the um, you know the if you're if you're going if you're making the case for for veganism, well, where did that? meat come from and what was involved in that process and and so on so i think i think a big part of moving forward on this in a positive way will be transparency will be laws regulations passed by parliament saying if you're in this sector um you need to be transparent about your supply chain you need to report this in your annual report you need to and it's a slippery slope from that to oh goodness um, we need to now change some of our practices, right? So I think transparency is is going to be a, a big thing as as we do move in in this direction. Mm. I was just thinking about, um, yeah, I was thinking about uh, well, a couple of things. One of them was hilarious laws that would be effective, but it would also be hilarious. And one of them would be is that you know uh, we put a like three hundred percent carbon tax on all meat products. Mm. Uh, you don't pay it if you kill the animal yourself. And because there, there's so many meat eaters and myself yeah. included that it was like, okay, I'll, you know, for instance, me, I'm in economic, we've gone over this before uh, on the show and uh, don't give me a bunch of emails, uh, but I'm currently what I call an economic vegetarian, which mm-hmm. is that I will, if I'm offered free meat and that's what's available to eat, I will eat it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't, I don't spend money. I don't, I don't put my money into the meat industry. Mm-hmm. And for me, that would, that's, well, like, that's really easy. I'm never going to kill an animal. Uh, mm-hmm. So there we go. I guess I'm full vegetarian now, right? And I can't afford the meat because it's now $700 a pound. Yeah. So problem solved. Like, but for me, that wouldn't even be a big deal. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, that's one of my segues. But the other thing, as far as like the transparency thing, I mean, I think like that's one of the things we have to sort of, and I'm, I'm almost concerned about getting like overwhelmed with that information to the point that mm. that people just tune it out because mm-hmm. like you know if we're going to be really honest mm. like i'm i have an i, I have a, a laptop right in front of me that the the, the components here whether you're talking about the mining for the metals involved mm-hmm. or the production and the labor involved probably in china uh there is a body count a little body count associated with mm. this laptop there's a there's a body count associated wow. with your iphone right it, there's no escaping it yeah and uh, n- never mind all the misery and, and pollution mm. and long-term poison. I mean, that's really heavy. And what I'm concerned about is like, that's really true, but I also feel like it's really easy to get numb to that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, well, okay, fine. So you're saying there's a body count to everything. So once mm. it, once it's on everything, then it's on nothing, right? And you just sort of, it allows you to forget it. Um, but I mean, I think it's important to think about that once in a while. But if we were, you know, if we're really being honest, like, okay, there's a body count, what am I supposed to do about it? We have to understand that, like, you know, you're getting those low prices because somebody was, you know, poisoned, killed, murdered, or just f- died on the job or was poisoned slowly. Mm-hmm. That That's where that you got the discount. Somebody else's mm-hmm. life gave you that discount. And so when people are, well, that's going to raise prices. Well, it's going to raise prices because someone's not going to have to die for me to own it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hate to, I promised this would be a light show and I hate to end it there, but... <laughs> You know, you can take the tiger out of the woods, but anyway. Uh, so we're going to transfer the bonus show now. That's basically it for the Green Majority. I haven't even decided, Rob, what we're going to talk about, but I feel like let's let's talk more about dating because that was fun. I would love to chat dating. All right. So two two single guys and possibly some of my techs, if I can get them to stick around, are going to talk about uh, dating. Uh, so uh, with that, that's the Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening and uh, take care. Have a good Green Week. <laughs>